One of the biggest challenges that I have every day when I do office design work is I have to sit here and think about how is that office space going to support them in 10 years? That's, I mean, it was really hard pre-pandemic. Now it's like, I think, I think the pandemic has been really good for office and I can get into that because that's a controversial statement, but I think it is so, it is so hard to be that predictive of behavior in, you know, five to seven years. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Never in modern history has office space been more disrupted than during the COVID-19 pandemic. And as CEOs contemplate how to bring workers back, whether they'll bring workers back, Betsy Boss is helping many businesses go beyond office updates to reimagine how we work and what purpose the office serves. It's an exciting time to be an architect and commercial designer, particularly for someone who enjoys a challenge. Betsy is the founder and CEO of Studio BV, a Minneapolis design firm that's made a big splash in just five years from innovative spaces for companies like Digi International, Envent, and Evereve to modern apartment buildings that factor in new demands such as lobby workspace. Betsy joins us today to talk about the intersection of business and design, both personally and professionally. I'm so excited for you to hear what she sees for the future of work. Betsy Voss, I am so thrilled to get you on this show, and I'm going to reveal something that I know you won't like me to reveal, but I have to, and that is that you kept telling me you you didn't belong here, that you're not a business person, and I had to literally say to you, yes, you are, Betsy, you own a business. <laughs> Um, I agree with that statement. I have said that to you many times. So, uh, listeners, beware. This is not really a business conversation. Um, <laughs> well, but it uh, is. that's where we started, and that's actually kind of what I love about what you do and the intersection of art and creativity and design and, of course, business. Um, so, I, you know, it's interesting. We at Twin Cities Business, we do, as you know, Betsy, a monthly feature called Office Envy, something we introduced a couple of years ago. And the idea was not just to show pretty spaces, but to talk about how the space relates to the work mm-hmm. and how we think about space in, in relation to what we do. And it's funny because as, we're, as we were looking at different examples over and over, what name kept coming up? Studio BV. Studio BV. Every cool project, it seems, was Studio BV. And I'm like, who is this person with the initials BV? And how <laughs> is she doing so many cool projects? And it's you. It seems like you're doing everything. And it's all commercial. Well, thank you so much for featuring us. I think that Office Envy um, area in your magazine is really important. There is, um, I think, an interest finally in office design, I think, in terms of like the executive culture of business. And I think that you're giving a spotlight that's rich with the story. You oftentimes talk to the clients whose spaces we've designed which is really the most important thing. Talking to me doesn't matter. Talking to them is what matters because it's their space. We have changed, hopefully, their business for the better. And that's the story that I want at least our work to tell, but also those features to tell, which I think you do a great job because 
these are, you know, sometimes in someone's career, once or twice, you get to do this. You get to reshape the environment that you that you lead if you're an executive. And it's a big deal. And those moments of success and transformation are captured really well in that feature. So thank you for that. Um, I, I Every single time, I'm honored to be there. And I am fortunate enough to work with fun clients. I will say that. Well, that we'll, is a, we'll, a talk, joy. we'll talk a little more about some of those clients and especially now how you're thinking about those offices and workspaces so much changing this year and looking ahead. But first, let's tell everybody a little bit about your background and about how you grow, grew up going to museums rather than water parks. That's really where it all starts, <laughs> right? It really does. Um, I grew up in St. Paul. Um, and my, we would go, I would say we, we would go on family vacations, but we would make sure that not too much fun was had. It was a lot about learning. And so we would have to journal every day, our experiences. And we, we weren't allowed to draw. Only my youngest sister could draw. We had to use our words. My mother was like, no, 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 you have to, you have to write it out. And so we would do mandatory um, journaling. Yes, yes. yes. And she kept them and we were like, throw those away, please. We do not want to see those now as adults. But it was really about, I mean, I think that that was their intent was let's spend time in places that we don't have in Minneapolis. So we do a lot of East Coast. We did a lot of D.C. museums, a lot of Williamsburg, if you're familiar with mm-hmm. Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, but I think those those things did make an impression on all of us. And I think I love arts. I mean, it's truly a, a, a love of mine. But I think it really made a big impression around places and spaces. Hmm. I remember we waited in line at Monticello for what seemed like three days um, to get into that space. And when we got there, though, there was like this majesty. If you've ever been there, it's it's in this rolling countryside. And, you know, you know, the reverence of Thomas Jefferson. And even as a kid, like it made this like deep, deep impression on me. And I was like, something about this is just really glorious, like um, just the power of this place and what it meant to obviously our country and to, to him as a you know politician, inventor, whatever. Right. So that kind of stuck with me. And I think that that idea of, um, I don't know, big places and how design can really shape behavior. I mean, it really is powerful. So, so it early was- on. That was that was key, and I was a little kid then, right? Like third or fourth grade, yeah. And, and so, at what point did you make the connection between design and spaces, and oh, the career path of I'm going to become an architect? So I don't really know. I remember loving um, reading floor plans as a kid. I don't know if you remember like Parade magazine, but have like house floor plans, and I would just eat that stuff up. I would rearrange my parents' living room often, my bedroom. <laughs> I remember I got like in junior high a stipend to design my bedroom and I was so excited. And even now I made good decisions around those design decisions. I, I bet say, you did. I, 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 could, I could redo that. Um, did your mom but, make you write a paper about it too? <laughs> no. Oh, I good. She would have loved to, but um, <laughs> she hung the wallpaper so I could have written a paper about the quality of her craft. Um, but but I would say that, like, I always just adored this. And I do remember my mom telling me once, you know, you could do this for a job. And I was like, oh, really? This is a job? Like, and I've always felt that. I mean, I think that's one gift I've gotten in my life is that I don't work. This is just what I'm built to do. Mm-hmm. I have no other skills. So for me, this is a joy every day. Um, and I've always felt like that. So, you know, just I took um, a drafting class in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I started learning about Frank Lloyd Wright, the things you do in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s um, with the books that you have. And, sure. and I knew that that's what I wanted. So so you just, went to, to school, you went to an interior, was it an interior yep. design program? Yep, at Arizona State. Okay. So I left because 
Um, it was really cold here in the 90s. And, I mean, <laughs> Only in really the 90s, cold. huh? Right. <laughs> well, it seemed like it was brutal. And I was like, I don't know, a local school or Arizona State? It's like, oh, my best friend and I were like, that sounds like a better option. So we went there. The good thing was that had a wonderful program in architecture and interior design. And so I actually chose interior design because I thought it was actually higher, higher rated at school. And I thought I want to go to the better program. Um, but it was a lovely education and it was really multidisciplinary, which was the gift of that education for me. And I think really shaped my career probably most, most significantly of my education because they had us take kind of commingled all of our classes together, whether you were urban plan or design or graphic design or architecture. So that really, when you're young, starts to open up your eyes to things in ways that if you're just in your one sort of major prime program, you wouldn't really get to know. Mm. Um, I had a minor in urban planning. They wanted you to kind of have a minor in the, in the program, which led me to think about design as just kind of, I think about design as like the sense of scale, whether it's a graphic design problem or an architecture problem. These are all questions of scale. Sure. It's not really a different set of decisions or analytical thought process or creativity for me. And I think that is because of Arizona State. So hmm. so being away four years was enough for to help you forget the cold. You came back mm-hmm. to the Midwest. You, yes. I know you worked for a big firm in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Was that before? You did get a master's in architecture. At so some... yeah, I actually worked for a large firm here right out of undergrad, which was really fun and, and, and very enjoyable. And then I went to graduate school at University of Minnesota, um, which I adore. And I got a master's in architecture and it was really a lovely, lovely program and a great time. Um, I'm still deeply involved with the University of Minnesota. So I want to just say that um, it's a wonderful program. And it really... Um, it gave me that sort of formal architectural component to my education. So I was really, I thought, pretty balanced in terms of understanding sort of interior and spatial environments and then architecture and kind of urban planning. And, did and you, I did work in Chicago, yes, right after for just about a year. Did you a, know um, when you started actually working in the field, did you know that you were interested in commercial design versus oh, yeah. residential? Why? I think the power of um, what what design can do to change a business is extremely uh, potent for me. And I think it's just, it never gets old. Like it never gets old, like what we can do to change that. Whereas in residential, you're solving for different things. And it's just, it's not necessarily kind of a transformational business case that you can help create. Um, So I was always um, leaning towards commercial. I think that's something that a lot of people probably don't ever think about or appreciate that you're not just making decisions about paint colors and finishes, you are really thinking about how the space is used and how it relates to the business. A hundred percent. I mean, finishes don't really matter that much. I mean, it's kind of the last thing we do. It's really about how is this going to answer some question that the client has? Is there what needs to change or transform or what needs to shift? We, we do a ton of work around that. And I think, especially at Studio BV, because I get the privilege of shaping our process our way. We spend a lot of time up front doing that. And I think that's where our outcomes are are really um, transformational for clients because we know them that well because we spent the time doing that. Um, I think a traditional process, I was actually explaining this to someone on my team, like the AIA has a formula, you know, in terms of how much time you should spend per year fee. And I don't, I don't do any of that. It's all, <laughs> I explained to her what that was. And I'm like, and then we don't do that. So we do something <laughs> totally different because- it's, it's really, to me, about that upfront conceptual piece, because you really can't, if you don't spend the time and that energy doing that, you can't, you know, 
make drawings and facilitate in, in, the, in a construction process any ideas because there are none there. Does that make sense? So Absolutely. to me, the idea making is where we need to spend most of our time and then we can execute once we have that idea. And it's about, like you said, how are we going to solve these problems? What is the programmatic kind of relationship? Not what colors carpet or the paint. That's mostly irrelevant. But but I wonder, do do your clients realize that? Or do they come into that first meeting wanted, wanting to talk about colors and finishes? I mean, do, what are the Sometimes. questions you ask them? What, what do you ask in that first meeting? Well, we just had one yesterday. Um, and sometimes, um, and it went great, but I, we try to, we try to get a lot of people in that, in that first meeting, because we really want to hear a diverse perspective, you know, some age, but also tenure in the organization. Uh, what's your, you know, an IT person and a marketing person are really, uh, they're very different and they're going to give me a lot of different information. Um, leadership's going to give me different information. So we want to talk about what's working well, what isn't. We want to talk about where's this business going? Because I think one of the biggest challenges that I have every day when I do office design work is I have to sit here and think about how is that office space going to support them in 10 years? That's, I mean, it was really hard pre-pandemic. Now it's like, I think, I think the pandemic has been really good for office and I can get into that because that's a controversial statement, but I think it is so, it is so hard to be that predictive of behavior in, you know, five to seven years. So I'm trying to ask questions around their business and change. And are they going to be acquired? Are they acquiring? How are they growing? What is, you know, what is this about this idea of a move? Um, Because I need to sort of, you know, almost like a researcher figure out where are they going so I can start to predict how I can support behavior changes in the future that they can't tell me about. Yeah, I can't even imagine how hard that is right now. And I do want to talk more about that. But before we do, Let's talk about the chapter before Studio BV, because Studio BV just had its five-year anniversary. Congratulations. Yes, it did. Thank you. But you spent the, the decade before that working for a, a large organization, mm-hmm. a large yeah, firm. I did. What was um, that I like? did. Uh, it was a learning. I mean, I learned a lot. Before that, I had worked in a small studio, about 10, 12 people. And I feel like I have, like, so as I said, no business training. But these two experiences really shaped how I wanted to create my business because I I feel like that when I was working at the small firm, there was a lot of great things there. There was like a really lovely sense of work-life balance. Um, folks got to work on, and this is a small studio, but people got to work on one to two projects, really dig in. The the, the model was, was really a small firm model. And I mean that with all the good things about that. I really liked that. Then I got to work at a, at a large company and that was a learning experience because it was really running a business. We were an uh, office of a larger organization and that I had no experience running a business. I remember that first week I had to, I was pulled into a meeting and I had to do draft invoices. Do you know these words? They're, I, I they're mean, I know the words, words but, but, but I was like, I'm confused. I'm in the wrong meeting. And they're like, no, 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 <laughs> you're in this meeting. And I was like, mm, I don't, I don't think I belong in this meeting because I'm not an accountant. And they're like, yes, but this is part of your job. And it was like, what? Why would that be part of my job? So that became a complete eye opener in terms of like, okay, basically we have to run this business, even though we're in a large company, it was very decentralized, which allowed me to learn everything about how to run a business, um, which was really helpful because I would tell you, I was, I was a stranger to draft invoice, those words and anything about that. I and had now no you idea. just drop them left and right. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> so, 
that was a gift. It really was. And, um, and, and I learned a lot about, you know, everything around, you know, talent and, you know, profit and loss and, you know, how, do, how do things really work in a business? How does this happen? You know, how do you get a project? How do you write the contract? All those things. But it also was a great experience around working on a lot of different projects of different scales, sometimes in different locations. It was really good, but it was, I would say in that firm and a lot of large firms, the end goal is growth. That is the number one goal is growth, growth, growth. And that's great. Um, but in that idea of multiplication of size, sometimes design experiences, you know, innovation, um, and just like, you know, I think the work we do with clients gets sometimes pushed and compressed a little bit in ways that I, I thought long-term what I like mid thirties, I was like, what, what makes me happy about this job? And it is truly the work. Mm -hmm. I love doing design work. I love talking to clients about their projects. I like doing the work. And so as you grow in a large firm, you get, at least for me, I was getting pulled away from a lot of the work and doing a lot of like, you know, client management, you know, business development and mm -hmm. a lot of things that were important, but not what gets me out of bed every day. Mm -hmm. um, Cause to me, all of that's natural when you're doing the work with the client, it's not sort of a bifurcated system. And that's how larger firms actually have to work because they can't survive in a, the small ecosystem isn't supportive of growth. So the irony is thought, though, when you, go, when you set out to, to have your own firm, don't you kind of have to do all of those things? Yes, but it's different. <laughs> that is that is a real, now that you say that, that's true. But it's different when I can make it my own way, where I can reprioritize what's really important. And I do, I think, so Studio BV is not, is not a business that's run like a large corporate firm. I have that knowledge, but we do not, we do not do, we don't do work that way. We do work in a different way. We reprioritize it. So it's almost like this intersection of this small boutique firm I was at with this larger firm and kind of, if you could, if you could take, because I looked at it like this when I decided to leave and start my own practice, I did that because I wanted to make something different where we could do really transformational work and then people could be really happy in the work because happiness is really important to me. So I, I felt like I've had these great experiences, really I have, and then how can I kind of pick and choose what really works about these cultures and business models and really make something different? So did you wake up one day and just say, okay, I'm leaving? Or how, how much planning went into the decision to leave your, your big, fancy, cushy corporate gig? Well... It wasn't, it wasn't that cushy. Um, but it, I will well, say I know they it, thought you were kind of crazy to leave, right? Yeah. Well, well, I think people were surprised that I left because I was happy. I mean, I like my job. I love this job. So, I mean, it, that was not the problem, if you will. It was just like thinking about, so it was, it was like, I think I turned 38 and I was like, what am I going to do? Like, it, it, like 30, like to me, it was like, okay, you now know what you're doing in your career. You're, you're, moderately successful do you want to do this or do you want to do something that could be better and, and you could shape it in a different way and I always thought and I know I've heard other people say this on your podcast but really what do you have to lose if you're somewhat talented to some degree you're employable I could I could work somewhere else someone sure. might hire me so I thought bruised ego was probably the number one thing that was at risk there right but besides that um you know I thought well I can do this. Mm -hmm. I'm a little fearless in that because I was like, I can do this. So I, about a year, I sort of decided and then I kind of hunkered down no more travel, started saving every penny, you know, kind of really started creating a little nest egg where I could make a leap. 
but yeah, I planned it for like a year and then I, I literally leaped. And so no, it was not public. I just one day said, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. And what was that transition like? All of a sudden, you're you're on your own. You are an architect for hire, but you're also the owner of the the firm. You've got to set up all of those invoice procedures and all that yeah. stuff. <laughs> How did the first couple well, of years go? Well, the first couple of years, um, I feel like we're still in the first couple of years. Well, I had a business manager who's been with me for 13 years, so. I'll be honest. She is the, she's the genius behind the the invoices and all of that. She is a CPA MBA and she's wonderful. Um, And so she does that piece. Even when we had like four invoices that first November, um, which I was really proud. It's like four invoices. That's a big deal. But um, I, I basically leaped and and told a lot of clients. And then um, I have, you know, wonderful, wonderful clients who, you know, gave me business when it was just me in this same room. Um, five years ago, um, and wanted to support it. And I think, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, I think writing this business plan and kind of imagining what this would be like as a framework for a business. And then once you do it, it's so different. It's like the other side of like the looking glass. And then you realize, wow, it's just so different than what you thought it would be. Um, about two and a half years into studio BVA, I did, I do sometimes these retreats where I go to a friend's cabin and kind of think about things and, I looked back at that business plan and I thought, wow, it's really nothing like this. Um, it's it's, it's like so? this in the sense that the values were there, but mm-hmm. just our work was so different than what I thought it would be. Our clients were different than I thought they'd be. Um, it's just a lot, it's a lot richer than I thought it would be. I'll be honest. I think, I mean, I didn't know how successful I'd be at running a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, because I, I'd never really done that piece. Um, so I was, you know, I think pretty conservative about what I thought that I could really um, pull together in terms of a business operations piece. So um, that was really different. The work was different. Um, I mean, I primarily did at my previous firm, mostly office. Mm-hmm. We work in project types around restaurants, retail, um, health and wellness, medical. I mean, we do we do health and fitness. Uh, we do a lot of not-for-profit. We do corporate campus stuff. We do um, residential, multifamily. It's just so diverse. It's like I couldn't have thought of that because I wasn't in that space at my previous firm to even think that we could do that. So, so what is making think, all of those different kinds of clients come to Studio BV? Well, I guess um, I think some of them have told us they're looking for something different. So um, one of my great clients at University of Minnesota Physicians sought us out to do clinic work. And I had told him really clearly that we have no experience doing that. We're not qualified to do that. And I really wanted to make sure that he understood that he's made a mistake by asking me to do that work. <laughs> That's and always a good like, way to start the meeting. Well, you made I a mean, mistake. I want to be really honest because <laughs> I'm like, um, your expectations will be really, really um, lessened once you realize that I have no experience with this. I've never seen an x-ray machine. I don't know what's going on here. So, but his, he was like, I don't, that's not my focus. My focus is we need better space. And we feel like oftentimes when we work with experts who do this all the time, who we work with, we just sometimes are getting new ideas. We're getting, you know, somebody mid-level who's rolling out what they did in, you know, another project. And so I said, okay, well, if you can bear with the learning piece, I'm happy to try to do this. And it was, it's been a great relationship where we're working on more stuff with them and continue to do really fun stuff. But I feel like it takes, I, we're attracting clients that want to see change. And I think what they get is, I think 
when you do, when you're not an expert, which I think we're, I think, you know, we know a lot about office, but I don't think we're experts in anything. We really do look at the problem differently and we ask the questions and take the time. And that model isn't really available to folks that sell themselves as experts because they already know the answers. They're being hired to tell the answer. Whereas I think we're hired to ask questions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think then those outcomes are so different because I don't know where this is going to end or what the outcome will look like. And I think that people can get a tremendously different experience and and a different project based on that um, that approach. So what was one of the first really big um, influential projects that you did that put, you know, kind of said Studio BV has arrived? I, I think it's probably our Field Nation project, which was a is a technical company that's still doing really well. Um, they were in sublet space. So sublet space is space that's not their own, that some other company can't get out of their lease, so they'll let someone else kind of sit in their space. And so they were a thriving technology company. Um, they had hired us to to move them to a new location, their first real office. Um, and they were pretty big. I mean, we're talking about already, you know, 80 to 100 people that needed to get their, you know, their their first big office. So that's an exciting time because really you're working with a client who's never had a space that represented them. Hmm. They don't have any um, kind of previous experience or this doesn't work for us. Everything was a new. And I think that's a really exciting time to work with a client. So you can really dig into what is the aspirational goals for this office. And for them, it was really powerful because they, Field Nation was their name. But their brand was just literally on a, on a, it was on their website and on their business card, but they didn't have a physical manifestation of that. And I think that's what office is so, office design does is it makes real these values and intentions and culture that you really can't describe on a website or a Instagram account. It's just a physical thing. So we spent a ton of time working with them and thinking about how could we take and really help anybody who comes to this office really understand better what they do because it was hard for us to understand what they did for a while. It's really hard for them to describe what they were doing. Um, well, they aren't word not, people. They are coding correct, people, correct. right? They are, yes. And I am not. So these are, you know, two worlds colliding. So we um, created this um, really network um, of conduit that was painted their brand color orange, but really wove itself around the office that kind of become became... Um, a screen. It, it was actually doing light work. It was doing um, it was doing its job, but it was also kind of creating all these moments of sort of pattern and scale change and sort of enclosure. And it was a really beautiful gesture set amongst really a white and light gray background. So it was really pure. And I think this is an example of how our process is different. That was a very expensive endeavor that was really kind of mostly a brand move. Mm-hmm. But the work we did with that client for so long, understanding them and and knowing that because they can't communicate who they are, that space really had to had to kill it for them. They never wanted to. When we go through these processes, there's this word called value engineering, which is where you basically take money out to save, you know, to reduce the cost of the project. It was never really a possibility from a cost savings perspective because it was the soul of the project. And I think good design does that. If you can really get to know your client and create something that's really powerful it will stay in that project and it'll be there for them because they're it, they're already in love with it, right? It already means something to them, even though it's not built. So that project got a lot of press because it was it was graphically pretty bold, but I think it was also um, a unique design that people could see was actually changing and shaping how people were working. Um, so it was a lovely project and 
they're very great people. Another one that that stands out to me, we actually featured it in Twin Cities Business, is um, Digi. Mm-hmm. The, there is this there is this big copper thing. I, I'm, those are technical terms. You can mm-hmm. see that I'm mm-hmm. a design person um, that you created. And I know it wasn't quite as smooth as you might have <laughs> hoped. So we learn from our mistakes, too. Talk about that. We do. We do. So um, Digi is such a wonderful client. They were in that Opus campus up 169 in a building that kind of reminded me of like a junior high school. Um, a lot of it was like all these corridors with CMU block and no daylight. It was. Um, really awful it it was like two times bigger than what they needed so they had a new ceo and those new ceo times are often times where things are going to shift in terms of the office space so he um was very visionary and thought i think we could actually leave this lovely old building and kind of reinvigorate our team it was extremely traditional private offices on the window, executives separated from their teams. It was just a really kind of old model to work. And they're a really innovative company. And he was making really great changes. And so at some point, space can become an encumbrance to those, you know, executive visions for an organization. So they actually moved to a new office building, um, not new building, but a new location, and then really consolidated. And a lot of times consolidation is a powerful thing too much space is actually more harmful than less space. Hmm. You get, you get these, uh, you don't have energy. You just have people disconnected. You have no place to come together. So what we really wanted to do is to create these moments where people can come together and they can be really a metaphor for their business. One of the biggest decisions was that executive team went, they reduced a ton of offices. Um, the CEO's office is in board right near the restrooms. It's like a 10 by 10. It's very small. And it was a complete pivot from like the sort of executive role concept that they came from. And his intention was, I want the best views and the best space for everybody to gather and to work more openly. So kind of this idea of one big living room and this one big space together was kind of the gift to their culture. And it has really changed their business. With that, we um, wanted to create kind of a wow moment. So we they make, a t- they make like a lot of different products. Mm-hmm. They make a lot of the, in- this is a designer talking, they make a lot of the insides of technology products. Okay. That's about as technical as I can get. But with that, they do a lot with wireless technology. So we were using the material of copper as a metaphor for like wireless technology. And then we wanted to sort of suspend, if you will, kind of a copper orb conference room over this atrium space because we really wanted a moment that was really impactful. That could be a great moment to have you know, meetings with clients. And just to be clear, you mean literally suspend? Yeah, 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 it sort of hangs off the edge, suspended, um, and it's all glass, and it's all curved, and it's copper. Not, not inexpensive, but very important. Um, and so we had, we had a great contractor partner, excellent. We have this great relationship with this client, and I think everything is about relationships. And we all kind so, of acknowledge. So they bought in. They, they bought yeah. in when you pitched yeah. this crazy idea. Said, you know, yeah, I mean, we're like, you know, we'll see how this goes not done this before. We'll see how it goes. And so I had talked to the contractor who's a friend. I said, can we have some money on the side to fix problems? Because (laughs) there could be some problems here. And that was like, yep, no problem. So, you know, having the ability to sort of test is important, but then, you know, being at least having some foresight to understand that you might have to then talk that through with the client, which we did. And they were, um, when they first went in there, it was really a terrible experience. Um, your voice reverberated to the point where um, it's like those ringing bowls, you know, that, that mm. you can just like 
that spin and that that sort of echo lasts forever. So not successful in any way if you wanted to speak in the room. So we were so like, every oh. annoying thing about meetings was magnified mm-hmm. because it was just mm-hmm. like you'd hear it yes. over and over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, it was uh, impossible. It was like an impossible situation. Oh. Um, so we quickly did some studies and remedied it with the changes of materials and, and really kind of um, modifying some of the sort of glass material to, to help with the reverb. But I think the lesson is if we don't, and I was really happy that it, it sounds bad that it didn't go well, because I think it just proves that if you push it and you, you sort of create a safe space for that, you can really still achieve things. I mean, if you don't try to do that, then when are you ever going to get to sort of a place of sort of somewhere new and they love their space. They're, the mo- one of the most lovely clients I've ever had. And and I think they were on it for that journey too. I mean, they're a technology company. I think clients are, we have such lovely clients in Minneapolis in general, but just our clients, they're just, um, they're resilient and they want, if they want space to tell their story, they're going to have to kind of go along for the journey and know that, I mean, a lot of clients ask us, have you done this before? And we always say, well, no, but that's <laughs> why we're doing it. <laughs> we often get that. And I was like, if we've done this before, then we're not going to do it. So I think I think that's if you want to do transformational work, you have to at least put yourself out there and test some ideas that you haven't done before. Hmm. Um, so how does the story change in 2020? I hear you talking about the experience, about creating moments for clients. Meanwhile, a lot of us are not even going into the office and might not until well into 2021. What has that done to your work? Well, I think it's been an evolution. It's funny. I just had a kickoff yesterday for a new project. And um, I would say since March about 12, things have been really different. And I think in the past 10 months, we know so much more now than we did before. I think the first three months of the COVID pandemic, we were just thinking about how do we, I think everyone thought they were going back in July. Mm -hmm. A lot of my clients thought we'll be back in July. And how many plexi dividers can we purchase to separate ourselves from each other? Right. So that was sort of, if there was like a, uh, a diagram that was like step one. Then I think people realize, okay, we're not going to go back. Now what? And so I, right now we are working with clients and trying to, because now things are starting to reboot because I think by next fall, folks will probably be back in the office which we're expecting that. Um, we are now thinking about what is the value of COVID and there's been a lot of good things. I think in, I've been working for over 20 years. Never has America gone on a deep pivot and learned that they can actually work remote, that managers can trust their staff, that things do get done when they're working from their home office. Is it perfect? No, but there's a lot of wins here. So I think, especially in Minnesota, I mean, we're recording this in Minneapolis. I think the Midwest is just not as progressive as the coast. They don't, I had really no clients wholesale that were in any mobile program before the pandemic. I now have no client that's going back full time. They're Hmm. all going to be mobile to some degree. So think about that pivot. Like, I can't even imagine what would get us there but here. And I think that's a big win for the employee and the the sort of working mom, the working dad who needs more flexibility and more elasticity in how they work. And I think that's a good thing for them. I think it's a good thing for their organization because maybe they can support their teams better. But then... I think that's a good thing for office space because now we know why it matters. Now we know how desperately critical some of these components are in our lives. And now we can come back and reprioritize different spaces to support different work. So I don't think we would have ever gotten here with all of our clients um, 
in different ways and every client has a unique story, but I mean, I have an ad agency that's telling me we're only designing this for our staff, not for clients. And I was like, um, can I record this? I've never heard any ad agency in my life say that. <laughs> it's always about client experience. Right. And they're like, I'm like, I don't follow. But they were like, no, we're doing so well on digital stuff. I just think that if we ever need to post, you know, pandemic, we can go there. I just don't see them. I don't see that air travel happening as much anymore. We're going to we're going to do stuff for our team. Hmm. And talent in Minneapolis, as you know, is like a number one driver for every business. There's not enough of it. So, but for an uh, ad agency to say that is transformational. But in a way, I would think, doesn't that um, threaten your business and your whole proposition of creating these moments and wows in office space? If people are suddenly downsizing or not using the office, what did did you have projects that got I, shelved or is it that everybody now needs to rethink what the space looks like? Well, I think everything went into suspension early pandemic. So, yes, we had projects go on hold. But no, I don't think this is bad at all. I think this is good. I think I think it's good. I mean, let's take my office. I um I have a really lovely office, um, but it's extremely small. We have pre pandemic. We had we have desks that are 45 inches. Mm hmm. So I think you can understand how it's less than four feet, mm -hmm. which is extremely tight. We have no dividers. We're in sort of a benching concept. And even pre-pandemic, we were growing and I would want folks to sit in the middle. So like six in a pack and people wouldn't do it. They'd always be in the kitchen or the conference room. They just wouldn't do it. So I could see that we had pushed our limits of space, at least um, in how we work a little bit too far. And then the pandemic came. And now, I mean... I can't get more than four to five people socially distanced in there in terms of how space is allocated. So for me, I think, and I'm not saying this is everybody, but I need more space. I need a whole different way to think about space. I don't think it's a threat at all. I think it's actually more powerful than ever. I, I think we are all, we can do a fine job going on Zooms for the rest of our life. We're never going to innovate. We're never going to build a great culture. It's going to be really hard to mentor people. We're going to need to go back to work to do the things that make work joyful. Mm -hmm. um, we can execute, but we're not doing our highest and best work. And so I think now space matters more than ever. Where Where is this office? Is it really activating our teams or is it just a bunch of cubes in an open office? I think right. that's what we're looking at with clients is saying, if it, let's say at least two to three days a week you're at home, why do we need these cubes here? Because if you're going to come in, you're going to meet with your teams, you're going to do one-on-ones, you're going to do... Um, Maybe there's executive uh, intersections and sort of other meetings that you're going to have. You're not going to sit in a cube and just pump out work that you could do in your home office or at Starbucks or somewhere else. And I think finally, culturally, my clients, every one of them are saying, yep, that's right. So let's figure out now what we can do. And I think that's unlocking possibilities for the office that we really would never have gotten to without the pandemic, at least in the Midwest. So interesting. I mean, it, it is really causing, comp I mean, you've always thought about the purpose of space, but a lot of us just think about, you know, we go to the office and do you have a door? Do you have a cubicle or, or what is yep. it? And so now we're all thinking about the purpose. I know for, for my own company, I mean, we're working remarkably well remotely, but what we're missing, and I think every company is missing, is collaboration. So if the office becomes more, if the purpose of the office is more about collaboration, what does that mean design-wise? How are you thinking about collaboration spaces? So I think that's a great question. Um, we're trying to think about less the word collaboration, which is kind of a large word to encompass probably a hundred different activities. We're thinking now about teams and behavior. What do you want to do? What, what is this about? Is this about making ideas? 
Is this about working on a problem for three months? I mean, is this about presentation of ideas? Is this about learning? Is this about, you know, a cultural play? So really taking that word collaboration and really kind of digging into for you, Allison and your team, what would, what's going to make you want to come to work? Like, where is it uh, the best edit suite that you've ever had? Is it a, a place where you can pin up and show the layout of the next magazine? And it's these spaces, or it could be digitally, because we're going to now face this intersection of who's in the office and who's not in the office and how is that equitable? But how do we think about the behaviors you and your team need to go back into the office that you really can't do at your dining room table? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's kind of unpacking that word collaboration and really thinking about is it is it how is it activating your work and then how can we design spaces that not only do that but then can transform again and again because your your ownership team is making real estate decisions that are somewhat long term so flexibility we may feel differently flexibility seems to be the the key word and i know we've talked about that a lot too spaces that can do different things can you give us an example or two of, of how, you know, just kind of different types of spaces, not the traditional, you know, boardroom, conference room setup? Well, I think about, okay, a perfect example is um, Evereve's office, which we worked on. They wanted space that could really start to adapt. So we gave them um, a really great cafe space that's really more like your living room, great room concept. It doesn't look like a cafe because it's really almost a residential kitchen, Mm -hmm. which is really reflective of their culture. And it connects to a boardroom. It connects to lounge. It connects to another training space. And these rooms have garage doors that open and furniture that creates different conditions and settings. If you're in one space, it's not like you're in one space. There can be seven to eight things happening in one space that really feel like they're differently configured to support those areas, as well as technology, as well as places to write and to pin. So we have always tried to do that. And I think now we really need to do that in ways that are even more flexible. So how can those spaces really transform once again? I think we spent a lot of time pre-pandemic focused on creating small tuckaway spaces for people to do heads down work. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest shifts for our business because that no longer is necessary. That can happen at home. So we're going to, we're now going to reallocate that space now to what? So how do we take those spaces that we've, you know, everyone was in the open, but they had these little huddle rooms. Well, now what is the huddle room doing? A table and a chair to make a call you can do somewhere else. So now what? Let's make that more of an activator space for you and your teams. So I think those are the things that we're thinking about, you know, when we try to think about how are we going to support a hybrid model of at home and at work. So it's funny, uh, we we had gone so far to the extreme with the open, everybody wanted open concept, right? But then you started to see these those telephone booth structures yes. coming in because people yes. actually do need privacy now and then, or the the kind of cafeteria style booth. Those were the solutions mm-hmm. for the problems with open concept. Are you saying now, do we move away from all of that? Do, do we still have open work areas? Do we not need those telephone booths at all anymore? I think um, open work areas are going to go to a shared model. And I think, you know, if, you, if you're only going to be in the office two to three days a week, do you really need to store all those things? Can you be in a shared model where it's not so critical that all of your things in the pictures of your dog and your children are there? <laughs> I think with that, we don't need those phone booths because if you're having a day that you're on calls all day, I think all of a lot of our clients are saying work from home. You're going to work from home that day. When you come to the office, we want it to be a social, a collaboration, a learning. 
we want a behavior that's not about you. It's about the team. Because we really think that, you know, if we're going to reallocate space or, you know, if they're going to reduce space, we really need to give people all the spaces that are going to work for the teams and really kind of bifurcate those phone booths. And I think also, you know, post-COVID being in a tiny box with no air in it, that doesn't sound that attractive anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it ever was attractive, but I think now people... That's not a solution that I don't think is going to be relevant. Do I think booths in a cafe? Yes, I think that's still going to be around. But I don't think they're as critical as they were pre, pre-pandemic. Right. And so this is exciting time in office, I think, because, I mean, when do you get the chance to rethink office? I mean, a shift that we haven't seen since the 90s when people got basically laptops on every, you know, or computers on every desk. Mm-hmm. Um, what about that plexiglass? Are, are we past that? Do you see, I mean, our office is thinking, our company's thinking longer term and, and yeah. not solving for the next few months. Yeah, everyone's thinking longer term. No one's thinking, at least a lot of our clients, um, and these are knowledge workers, folks that can work successfully from home. They are really um, kind of not spending any money on the short-term solution, focused on, depending on where they are in their tenure of the real estate, what do we do to change it now? Do we move now and think about what the future can be? Um, and I think the clients that we have that are moving now, it is a really exciting time. Most of our clients have done, you know, have not wasted this opportunity remote. They've done a lot of surveys with their teams. They've really dialed into what's working and not working. So they're coming into these move and transition times armed with more information that they've ever had. I think they know their teams better. I think they actually care more. I think as leaders, people have had to pivot and really realize that if you don't have your talent successful, happy, and working well, you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. So that is now, I think, that information is really accessible to all of us. And now as we think about these next transitions into their next space, we're really taking that and leveraging that to provide space that's going to really give them what they want. So I think it's a better day for office design than it has been. Well, speaking of leadership, you said it yourself, uh, you've you've spent the year thinking about all of these big challenges and big ideas and innovating, and I know that's what you love to do. Meanwhile, you also had to manage your own team remotely and and keep the lights on or figure out new lights or I don't know what. So <laughs> so so what has that been like? And I know it's been kind of a gradual process, but here you are, you know, celebrating this 5-year milestone. How are you feeling now about you know, not just the work, but but running your own agency, leading. There aren't a lot of women leading architecture firms. How do you feel about embracing yourself as a business owner and founder? Hmm. Can you um, claim it? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm not quite there yet. I would say um, We'd have survived. And I think, you know, I really wanted to come through this and we obviously are still doing really well, which I'm so grateful for, but better. And I think I try to be a resilient person. I want to grow and learn along with my team. I think I'm, I've become a more transparent leader. I think they know where I'm at. I think they know where we're all at. And I think I've been I've tried to be as flexible as I can with everybody. It's hard. It's hard when people have to, you know, teach little kids and daycare is closed and these are the hardest times to to try to be successful at your job, successful at parenting, successful, you know, with your extended family. So I've tried to take the role of, you know, 
I'm going to do everything I can to be there. And I think we as a business have done that and we've been really supportive and, and honest and open. Um, I think this summer was hard for everybody, you know, with, with what happened with George Floyd, I live really close to that. So that was personally hard for me. And mm-hmm. I think with, I think I'm just a different kind of more transparent leader because I, I don't know what else to do at this point. This has been such an, an interesting year of um, growth and vulnerability for everybody. So I've tried to, I try to own that and be um, and really be a resource for, for my team. I would say, so we've been successful this year and I can say that because we are diverse. If we, if all of our clients were office, it would be really difficult because for good reason, a lot of office work had to stop because really why you actually as a good leader can't do a ton of office work when this is so chaotic, you kind of have to pull back which I would do the same thing. So that's a responsible thing to do as a business leader. So, but we have so much diversity in the work that we do that's really been sustaining for the team and for us. And that's been a gift and also very joyful. Um, and I think office is still happening. We're just now looking at office in new ways. And I think I think there wasn't a ton in that first sort of, let's call it March through June. People were pretty much, I think, shell-shocked. And then things are People are working through it and they're they're using it and they're they're thinking about it as a different tool and learning from their teams. So I think all that is good. Have I embraced the business leader piece? I t- I think I shared with you when I started this this practice. I just really just did the work. I wasn't that interested in the business part of it. I mean, it was going on. We were you know doing invoices and people were getting paid, but it wasn't something that I spent any time on. I just didn't focus on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I. I went to my end of the year meeting with my accounting uh, firm and they were like, you haven't been here all year. Where have you been? And I was like, I don't know, doing the work. And, and I had no <laughs> idea really where we were. And they were like, oh, wow, Betsy. And I'm like, yeah, I got to kind of get, get a hold of this. Like I kind of, to me, that was like a moment where I was I thinking, okay, you have to just own the fact that this is also part of your job and you've got to run a business. So why don't you take a step back and think about what you want that to be? And that's when um, I really was wanted to harness some of the, I mean, this is a real privilege to run a firm. I mean, it really is. This is, I love this job. And, but I get to also allocate resources and it kind of, I really started to understand the power of that. And then what we could do with that for, for people who, I love doing not-for-profit work. I think it's just so joyful because it, good design tells stories and those stories are so ripe for the telling in the not-for-profit world. It's just so powerful. So I thought, why don't we just get more focused on that and start to do a significant effort in not-for-profit doing some pro bono work for people because we can. Right. I mean, and some, I was like, I realized. Something I you do couldn't this. do in, yeah. in your large firm. Sure. They probably wouldn't have wanted yeah. you to take the time that way. So so you started that and then actually ended up setting up a, a, a separate pro bono division. Yes. Tell us about that a yeah. little bit. So it kept growing, um, which was exciting. Um, we kept getting, you know, once, once, and I have a lot of really great people in my network that know if they see an organization that could use some help, they'll, they'll ring my bell. And we were doing this for about a year and a, maybe a year and a half. And it was getting pretty big. It was a significant, I mean, significant enough where it was, we were doing work constantly. I mean, in 2019, over 20% of our gross was pro bono or, uh, you know, our, our billing. That's a lot, but it was, I felt like it wasn't clearly packaged enough, not just for my team or for the organization, 
Um, but even for my partner. So when we do work, we're just the designers. I mean, we're doing the drawings and we're helping, but we need other partners, contractors, people in furniture. Everything you see in, in any space is, is sold and manufactured by a different company. So, and I am really, I have no problem asking people for stuff for my clients for free. No problem. <laughs> but it was getting to the point where it's like, why is Studio BB always asking for free things for these projects? It became, un, I don't know. I thought it would be easier for everybody if we could create a division. So it was really clear when we were doing pro bono work, who was doing that. And then it was pro bono work. So other organizations could say, okay, now I understand. This is designed for Studio BB. It's pro bono. And that has really helped. So we did that about a year and a half ago. And it's really helped. We've had large companies come to us and say, anytime you need this, we will help you. So it's, it's, it's become what I hoped it would be, which is sort of an organizing factor, but also sort of its own thing that people can connect to and help us, and which is really helping really the, the organizations we get to work with. Um, and I do, I feel like design is transformational for everybody, but we try to, we do the same level of design for our paying clients as we do for our pro bono clients. So you see I hope just as just the same quality of ideas, we don't have necessarily the same budget, but good design doesn't have to cost a lot. We can do it. And so we just got Tubman. Uh, we just finished Tubman's headquarters, which is a domestic violence organization. We mm -hmm. just got that published um, this week in a national uh, office like publication, which I thought, yes, like that's like the big win for me because yeah. I'm like, that was a project that they, you know, they have hardly anything. And it's just, that's so glorious to me that like, it just proves that like you can do it. You can do it for if even if you don't have a lot of money, we can make it happen. So that's the that's the power of the business for me is that I get to no one can tell me I can't do that. So right. that to me is like, that's the one of the greatest joys. I and would the, say. the power of good design. Well, mm -hmm. so much to for look, everybody. Yeah, really. Uh, so so much to look forward to. It's just going to be fascinating to see how our offices and workspaces change going forward. Can you leave us, Betsy, not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. If, if there was just like one key thing, one key piece of design advice that you would give to CEOs, like a, a starting mm. point for thinking about, you know, rethinking your space for a new era of work, what would it be? Where do you start? I would, I would say look at the wins you've gotten in this time of COVID and then really think about what's the most important thing about your business. It's typically like innovation ideation prioritize that. Don't prioritize people sitting in desks doing focus work. Prioritize how you're going to create the next best thing, and then we can design for that. I love it. Can we do a quick lightning round? Yeah, yeah. Okay, favorite color in, in an office setting? Mm. White. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's good. That's, do you have a favorite white? I know there are like a million Yes. White paint chips. What's yes. your white? I have two favorite whites. Two favorite. If I could have two, one is Snowbound from Sherwin Williams, and the other is Zurich White from Sherwin Williams. Zurich is a lot more. It's more accepting of warm and cool. It can literally. That's why it's called Switzerland Zurich. It can do anything. So if you're gonna repaint a room white, you have no control over anything else in the room. Go there. If you're doing something brand new and you have control, go Snowbound. It's a little bit more pure. Okay. But it's not too blue. Those, you, you could use those in your homes, too. That's a that's a forever give. C-suite offices, the corner office, is it, a, is it done or does it continue on post-pandemic? I think it's moving away. I think it'll be done. I mean, I just don't, I think 
leaders now more than ever know how important behavior is and what 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 they do has impact. And so I think they're moving out of those offices. I think they're going to be somewhat mobile. And I think if they are landing in an office, they want to be visible and in the mix. Okay. Um, key element of a cafeteria eating area. Mm. Uh, my favorite element is like a as a bar because you can do anything on that bar. Um, not bar height, counter height, which is 36 inches, but you can do meetings there. You can do a presentation. You can have a happy hour. You can just eat lunch there. It's like the most versatile thing you could do in any office is put in a, a counter bar. Treadmill desks, amazing or <laughs> eyesore? Um, eyesore. <laughs> I'll be honest, I sore. And I think in a world post-pandemic, if people aren't going to be five days a week in that space, why do they need that? They could just walk around Lake Harriet if they want to. Right. So and take that take that webinar or conference call or listen to whatever. So no, I think they're a thing of the past. Go to art element if you don't have a huge budget for art. Oh. Well, first of all, make a budget for art. Um I would say my favorite things in spaces that really add a lot of contrast are either area rugs, so decorative accessories. If you have no money, you can still come up with pillows, table lamps, and rugs because retail is available. So that's a basic. If you're going to come up from that, I would say some good photography, large scale. I would say a weaving. These are things that are add so much interest and texture and like a, a moment of inspiration potentially for people. And I think there's a lack of art in people's everyday lives, but especially in the office, people need to be inspired. And so um, I'm a true believer in art. Okay. Uh, will we have touchless doors and high-tech everything? No. no. Not here. I think you will in, in New York. I think you will in other places. I just don't see, I mean, I've done this long enough in this town. I don't see landlords investing in that. Those are expensive systems. I do think we're going to get better mechanical systems. And that is what we really need. That idea of touchless, again, in June and July was really important because people thought that it was a really, that virus can be transmitted so easily on surfaces. We now know that's not really the case. Um, you can, it can be transmitted, but the, the likelihood is a lot less, especially if you're hand washing. Um, better mechanical systems is really the best thing you could do from an employer perspective. You can augment your current system for not a lot of money. That's going to create a different filtration process, which will really help you. And that is the best money well spent on the pandemic. Not retina scans go into the bathroom that is just something that, that i just don't see as a realistic uh, thing in minneapolis although it's kind of james bond cool though it is it is, <laughs> it is. well for you for your office right. but for the rest of us regular people okay and last but not least favorite material is it copper <laughs> material it could be copper <laughs> and you know copper has all these antibacterial qualities um I think I think a warm metal like that is a beautiful thing. Um, I love stone, although we don't really want to do natural stone anymore. So I think some sort of engineered quartz is a beautiful thing. And I, I'll be honest, a wood floor. I think that that's one of the greatest things in life is a wood floor anywhere, in your home, in your office. If I could pick one thing, I'd pick a wood floor. I love it. Love a wood floor. Well, thank you, Betsy, for your time so much to be inspired by. Great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Well, one thing that comes through crystal clear in talking to Betsy is how much she loves what she does. She continues to tell us that it's not a job, it's just her passion. 
That's actually something that professors study. So let's go back to the classroom, to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Erica Dean is an associate professor of management. Professor Dean, I know that you spend a lot of time thinking and studying meaningful work. It seems like Betsy has cracked the code. What can the rest of us take away? Absolutely. You know, Betsy's an inspiring business owner and leader. And what I love to see is someone who's taken their passion, their purpose, and created. She's crafted not only her job, but her firm around those values. And so that's something we can learn from. So not all of us, you know, grow up knowing exactly what we want to do. A lot of us, even as adults, are not, you know, super inspired by our work. Are there some takeaways or or some things that, that we can think about? Because I think everybody at the end of the day wants to do something that makes them happy and is fulfilling. We spend a lot of time working. Mm-hmm. I often try to guide students to think about what do they enjoy doing? What are their strengths? What are their talents? And how does that match with the skills that industry is, is in need of? And there's a match there. When you look at what inspires you, what you're good at, and what the world needs, we often really call that a true, not just vocation, but a calling. Mm-hmm. And so when you're able to, to get that pinnacle together, it's beautiful. It, it's magnificent. Like the impact that you have, the energy that you have in your business as a leader, as a manager interacting with clients is unparalleled. And so it really starts with some self-awareness. Who am I? What do I love doing? What am I good at? And how do I deliver that? in a work environment. And that might be inside a company, and it might be launching your own firm, as Betsy has done. Right. It's so interesting because that does come into play in such a strong way with our spaces and spaces making us happy and inspired and feeling more creative, which is something that Studio BV is always thinking about. What Any thoughts right now, especially in this time and after this crazy disruptive year, how does that begin to change the way we think about meaningful work? Absolutely. It's an imperative question right now. Uh, We have our time working in our own space, maybe in our own homes, but when we're projecting in and we're able to come together in the physical space, in that office space, there is that moment, there's the opportunity for having human connection or what we call a human moment. And those high quality connections can only happen in person. And that's where we're trying to think about how do we better facilitate that time? How do we create a unique space? to make that meaningful, to make that special. And so it's about fostering those relationships. And yes, you can identify some some high value connections virtually, but end of the day, nothing compares to that in-person experience. And what I loved about the way Betsy talks about this and how she designs spaces is the use of color and light and art. And those pieces really help us step outside our own head and imagine. And, and create. And we actually know that our best work, that, that curiosity and, and new ideas, the work doesn't happen, that kind of, of creation doesn't happen in solitude. Hmm. Or when you're bam, 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 just powering through tasks and powering through deliverables. We need actually some, some more idle space in our brain. Maybe it's on the beach. Maybe it's on your commute to work. I've noticed that myself. I'm losing a little bit of that idle time by working from home right. and, and just go, 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 jumping from kid tasks and work tasks and, and everything that's happening. And Sounds so when familiar. You go to, yeah, I think we all can relate to that. It's, 
yes, it's wonderful, but it's also actually more stressful Mm -hmm. because every second of your time is being eaten up by a present need, especially for working parents. And so the drive to work and stepping into the office can be a, a relief and a release. And so how do we create an environment that really truly rewards the fact that I get to go to the office today. I want to be here. And as Betsy talked about, we're, we as employees and as managers and, and business owners realize how important that is and how do we make the space inspire more of that and, right. and really as a reward, right? We're, we're able to today come to the office, have this meeting in person, and we want our space to, to bring about uh, the beauty of that. And for every firm, that's going to look different. Um, But creating those moments is powerful. Well, it takes a pandemic to make us really appreciate the, the, the good that happens at the office. I guess that's a silver lining. Well, thank you for the perspective. So interesting to to discuss meaningful work on every level. Erica Dean, Associate Professor of Management at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thank you again to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. And thank you for listening to By All Means. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And if you get a chance on Apple, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. Thanks so much for listening. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.